Okay, uh, a few years ago, there was a Microsoft guy. He decided he wanted to publish a book where he attempted to, to debunk many of the myths of common sense thinking. Title of the book right there, Every, Everything is Obvious Once You Know the Asker. Uh, and then the subtitle, How Common Sense Fails Us by uh, Duncan J. Watts. So he, he tells in the, in the book the story. He's teaching an undergraduate class at Columbia University. He says, I want you to consider two countries. In country A, 12% of the population agrees to be organ donors when they die. In country B, 99.9% .9 of the people are organ donors. Now, what do you think accounts for the difference? And so, you know, you'd have the class break up into little you know, conversation partners, and they'd discuss it. And they came up with lots of different possibilities. One country, they said, um, one country's in the third world. The other country is far more developed. Or one country is very religious, and the other country is not. Or maybe one country had you know, lots of accidental deaths and injuries, so organ donation became a cultural priority. And he says, okay, well, let me give you one more piece of information. What if I were to tell you that country A is Germany and country B is Austria? <laughs> now, what would account for that? Because, you know, they're both extremely developed countries, Germany and Austria. And so the class would meet up again and they would discuss other ideas uh, they said, well, maybe Austria had some, like, huge, big media campaign where they, you know, pushed organ donation, and uh, it, was, it was, you know, highlighted in that way. Or maybe during the Second World War, the Nazis harvested organs, and so there was some, you know, terrible social stigma associated with it in Germany. And, and then he goes, okay, here's the real reason. It is extremely simple. Um, it's not very <laughs> uh, uh, complex. It's actually quite boring. He said, the answer is opt-in, opt-out. In Germany, you have to sign up to be an organ donor, and in Austria, everybody is an organ donor unless they submit an opt-out uh, you know, form. And what they realize is that, obviously, if you, if you force people to go to the actual extra step of you know, submitting a form, they're usually not going to do it. So what accounts for 99.9% .9 versus 12% is something that was simply administrative and bureaucratic. And as much as we maybe hate administration and bureaucracy, nevertheless, I mean, it can make a, a huge difference in a society. It can also make a huge difference in a church. Aaron tells me that th we're going to adopt the same approach when it comes to staffing the nursery. <laughs> Everybody is opted in. You have to submit a form, otherwise, well. We've got a, a similar thing happening in the early church in Acts chapter 6. I have to warn you, this is probably not the, the most inspiring passage of the Bible to preach on. And if you're visiting with us today, uh, not the best first sermon to hear from me. But uh, I think it actually is pretty helpful for us as a church plant. The church at this moment is experiencing you know, tremendous growth. They're experiencing growing pains associated with that growth and little problems that have the potential to become big problems. We're looking at one of them here in verses 1 through 7. It's very instructive. We read that in those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic or Hebraic, I mean the, the Grecian Jews among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve, you know, the twelve apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, 
would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and, they will give, and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. Well, this proposal pleased the whole group. So they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. We'll read about Stephen's martyrdom next week and, and talk about martyrdom. Also, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid hands on them, um, laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large, this is interesting, and a large number of priests also became obedient to the faith. Let's pray one more time. Our Father in heaven, this is a topic we rarely speak to you about, either individually or together as a group. But we will speak to you about it now. And in the name of Jesus, we pray that you'd help our church plant like, to grow in administrative wisdom and skill and help other churches grow in this area of chronic weakness so that we would serve and love people better. Um, to the glory of your holy name, amen. Background. So there's good evidence to suggest that in the first century, a large number of Jewish people would come from, who were dispersed throughout the Mediterranean world, would come and move to the city of Jerusalem or some place just outside the city of Jerusalem near the end of their lives. The idea being that like, they want to be near the holy city, spend their last days in, you know, near the temple and have their bones buried somewhere in relationship to this holy place. Um, they moved there, you know, for that primary reason. But what would happen, as you, has been the case throughout all of human history, is guys died before <laughs> girls do. You know, the husbands would die, leaving then a large number of Jewish widows who are centralized around the city of Jerusalem and if they moved away from their extended family members, they had no one to care for them um, except for the church. So these widows, they spoke Greek. They came from, you know, cosmopolitan reaches of the empire. They were very different from the Jewish Christian widows who were native to the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish widows would only speak Aramaic. The Hellenistic or the Grecian widows uh, only Greek, um, completely different cultural contexts, one cosmopolitan, one tr traditional, different language, different customs. So what did the church do? In order to care for these, this large number of widows, they established a system, a relief system. Um, I mean, you'd almost call it a, a church welfare system to, to care for the, the women that were there and, and very vulnerable. The only problem is that somehow the relief system they set up, it gave the traditional Jewish widows an advantage over the Greek-speaking ones. Now, there's no suggestion here that that was intentional. It's, it's not, it, there's no suggestion that it was like racist. It was trying to pit the Hebraic versus the uh, Grecian. It just seems like it's an administrative screw-up, an, an oversight on their part. That problem is made known to the apostles, and then they address it with three steps. Number one, I think these steps are, are pretty instructive for us. Step one, they acknowledge a the mistake. They say, like, our, my bad, our bad. You know, that may seem like a small thing, but it's actually, if you haven't noticed, pretty hard for organizations to offer 
you know, mea culpas, like we messed up, we, we, we didn't do it right. I mean, normally the way that organizations on earth, uh, like they, they, uh, they're only going to apologize for something if they're under intense public pressure in order to apologize. Organizations like us like to project strength and not weakness especially when they're feeling attacked by outside criticism um, and, you know, they have their defensive filters up. But the apostles don't, they don't respond that way. I mean, they could have shot back from the hip. They could have like, we're apostles. Who do you think you're talking to? You know, you're complainers. The problem is with you. They could have said all of that. Um, They could have responded with a prideful spirit. They could have deflected the blame and passed it off as someone else's mistake. But instead, It's almost refreshing, isn't it, that they owned it. They own it. Another thing that maybe goes under-recognized in the passage is how the people who bring the complaint to the apostles are pretty gracious about it. I mean, they could have interpreted this as some malicious act. You know, like, you Jerusalem-born Christians, you're always thinking that you're better than us. They could have globalized this as a problem. They could have catastrophized this as a problem. They could have taken a a small thing and put gasoline on it, right? And the devil is a pro at that. He's very, very, very good at taking a legitimate grievance in a church and just fanning it into flame. What's, I think, so refreshing about the passage is how these Christians, legitimate grievance, they still refuse to have a censorious spirit. I like that word, censorious. We don't use that very often. But to be censorious is to be severely critical of others. And in the church, if you've been around for a while, you know that there are many opportunities (laughs) to be censorious because a lot of mistakes happen. You know, needs get overlooked, needs are forgotten, things are miscommunicated, decisions are not always explained well. Decisions are oftentimes not made all that well. I mean, think about it. When you have pastors who their skill set normally is going to be communication and hopefully caring for people's souls, when you have them as sort of your organizational heads, usually that's not a skill set that lends itself very well to uh, organizational management and, and clear uh, organizational communication, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, churches are sort of notorious for that. But it's a great thing when these three things happen. A, A church feels like they can bring a complaint to their leadership and trust that the leadership will listen. It's a great thing. B, when the the complaint is like from a gracious spirit and they don't jump to the worst possible conclusions. And C, when they're patient and give everyone else time to get on the same page and resolve mistakes. One, One of the great challenges of churches is that they operate at a glaciated pace. Like, Whenever there's a problem and somebody brings a problem, you're never able to fix the problem fast enough normally because they're they're ships that tend to turn very slowly. But like when somebody will just give you time to get everybody on the same page and some buy-in, it's a very good thing. So step one, they admit their mistake. Step two, they select appropriate leadership for the situation the names of the seven men that they select for this food relief program are significant. So we had Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Timon, I don't know how to pronounce it, Parmenas, and Nicholas. They're all Greek names. If you go down the list of the 12 apostles, 
all of the apostles have, group, have Hebrew names, except for two, uh, Philip and then, uh, I can't remember the other one, but, the, but we know from the story that they grew up in Palestine. So basically, they selected Grecian Christians, and they were Hebraic Christians. You see what's going on? If the concern is that the Greek-speaking widows are being taken advantage of, the apostles are going to select godly Greek-speaking men to administer the funds, who would be the best possible people to care for those, uh, the others in this situation. And it likely it was a lot of money, because there were a lot of people in the church in that day. And it, there was a lot that they were being put in charge of, a lot of food, a lot of money. And so they wanted men who were godly and wise, but also they selected men who were a strong cultural fit. And I think, this goes overlooked too in the passage, I think we have a, a very important principle here. Like, who is the most appropriate person or persons to serve a group of people in the church? We should select them. You know, we should select people who have a unique ability to connect with those who are being served and cared for. Uh, okay, let me talk about some intramural um, debates in our denomination, Presbyterianism. So in our Presbyterian denomination, we have an office called the Office of Deacon. And deacons are charged with caring for the physical needs of the congregation and caring for the poor. So we say about the office of deacon that it's an office of sympathy and an office of service. And the idea is that in our church you know, leadership, we are going to try and select the biggest-hearted, most mercifully inclined and generous men among us to lead in that effort. But one of the points of debate has been, like, can women serve as deacons? And it's been a long-running debate ever since the very beginning of our denomination. So the PCA it was formed in 1973. It was largely comprised of southern churches. It merged in 1982 with another denomination called the RPCES. Presbyterianism is just full of alphabet soup, of acronyms, of you know, denominations. Reformed Presbyterian Church Evangelical Synod, which was largely a northern church. In the RPCES, they didn't ordain women deacons, but many of the churches in that denomination had women deaconesses, and they were chosen in the congregation and set apart for, by prayer to do diaconal work. Um, now, I'm of the opinion, and there are quite a number of us in our denomination, that uh, women deaconesses are, are biblical. Um, they're in the Bible, and we mentioned already one of those instances in 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, where it immediately in this discussion about deacons switches to women. I think it's Paul's talking about, you know, female deacons or deaconesses in that passage. There's another passage in Romans chapter 15 where Phoebe is mentioned as a deacon of the church of Centria. So um, I, I think it's in the Bible. It's, it's definitely in church history. I mean, if, as far as church history is concerned, there's little doubt that women perform, performed some of the diaconal functions in the early church. With this caveat, normally the women were either widows who were selected or were older women who, um, who or, sorry, older women who were widows or younger women who had basically taken on vows of poverty and celibacy. 
Uh, There was a famous church council in 451 AD, the Council of Chalcedon, and it reduced the age requirements for deaconesses from 60 to the age of 40. But there's plenty of examples in church history of women doing diaconal work. Uh, It primarily consisted of charitable, caring for the poor, uh, and also participating in the baptism of other women. Because I don't know if you realize this, it's kind of wild, but in the early church, they would do a lot of their baptisms in the nude. And priests were not going to be baptizing women in the nude, so they would have the deaconesses perform the baptisms um, on on their behalf. Now, from what I understand, I'm not an expert on this, but the women who served as deacons, they largely disappear from the Western and the Eastern churches during the Middle Ages. That disappearance coincides with the office of deacon kind of changing to become more of a job with specific liturgical functions like preaching and reading the Gospels, etc. That's the background. My hope as the church planter of Reconciled is that we will be a church that has deacons and deaconesses, you know, uh, working side by side together for, um, for the cause of the gospel. You know, because I'm a minority in our denomination, we may have to set them apart for the work and ministry a little bit differently. Um, we'll have to use a slightly different ceremony, but they will work together to care for the practical needs of men and women and families in the church. They'll visit shut-ins, they'll care for the poor, they'll organize food, medicine, help, they'll lead us in generosity. That's, uh, I just think that that's absolutely um, what the Bible tells us to do. Now, there's a second important role that I'd like us to consider, and that is, and I I mentioned it in the email that I sent out this week, what about having women serve as shepherdesses? So there is no um, biblical office of shepherdess. It would be a a ministry role that was assigned in the church. But I'll tell you that one of the biggest weaknesses that I have seen 20 years working in this denomination, we are a denomination that only have male pastors and male elders, is, is like historically Christianity, you know, is actually there's more women in the church than men. <laughs> it's usually at least 60-40 right? Well, let's say you have a woman in the church who's going through a crisis. Maybe she's in an abusive relationship. I mean, for her to walk into a room of only male elders and try to start talking about her problems with them, uh, entrusting her situation to them, that is so intimidating. It is so intimidating. It is so hard, especially if it's an abusive situation. She's not gonna, she's not gonna trust them It just doesn't work. They can't understand her experience. Uh, I mean, I've seen it over and over again. It it just doesn't work. You know, likewise, I've been in plenty of marriage counseling situations where I'm sitting down with a husband and wife. They have some marital conflict that they're trying to work through. I found that if there's just me in the room or if there's just me and another male elder in the room, like how does the wife feel as she's kind of talking about the conflict to us? It, it just, it feels very imbalanced for a wife. And that's one of, the, one of the reasons why, you know, now whenever I do a premarital counseling, right, it's always me and Aaron together because she sees things that, that I can't possibly see. Now, the truth is, if you ask around in our denomination, there are story after story of, of women 
who quite frankly just have not been well taken care of by, um, by the male elders. And, uh, you know, male elders, I believe in them. I also believe that they lack, you know, female perspective and wisdom. And so it's for that reason that we've seen an uptick in the number of churches who have decided that what they would do is they would select from their congregation wise, godly, mature women to serve as shepherdesses to assist in the care of souls. Um, Like I said, is there a biblical office of shepherdess? No. But is there a biblical principle of shepherdess? And I'd say Absolutely, because who better to come alongside a woman in crisis than a godly mature woman to do so, Um, to counsel them, to encourage them, to be a friend to them, to advocate for victims? Who better to uh, provide marriage counseling than like a husband and I mean to a husband and wife than a man and a woman (laughs) who are wise and seasoned and and godly, etc. Even when it comes to like parenting your own kids. Who better to do that than both a a man and a woman instructing you in in that? So I I think that this this role of shepherdess is incredibly important, quite frankly, and that it's desperately needed in our denomination. And I would very much encourage you to consider it and consider the wisdom of it and give me feedback on it. But I think that, you know, things that you can do in a church plant that you can't do as easily in an existing church, um, this is maybe one of them. Like, that we could, we could beta test this and see if we can care for women in our congregation better with this than, um, than otherwise. And my hope is that it's something that would then, you know, catch on in other churches in our denomination. So, number step two is select appropriate leadership for the situation. Step three is then finally delegate responsibility and authority to those whom you select. I mean, the apostles, they trusted, as I said, these, these seven men with a lot of money and a lot of food. They said, you go for it. You have our full backing. Um, we will we'll just delegate it to you. Now, uh, I think all of us probably have a love-hate relationship with delegation, either at work or at home, because sometimes it means when you delegate something, it's more work for you and not less. I mean, everybody who has ever tried to get their kids to do the dishes, um, you realize that that's a lot of work to try and, and delegate that to them. Likewise, whenever we delegate, you know, we're basically saying that there are things more important to us in this situation than sheer efficiency, right? There are things more important to us than sheer efficiency. Um, It's important that we cultivate these skills in other people. Um, We're also saying there are things more important to us than, you know, pro-level quality whenever we delegate. I mean, if you want to pay somebody to professionally do the dishes, then you can. You can outsource it. They'll probably do the dishes better than you do. Um, But is really the solution... To, to outsource everything in a church? No. No, the way a church comes to maturity is the people in the church, they're actively utilizing the spiritual gifts, interests, inclinations they have for the sake of the kingdom. So Jesus has distributed his gifts widely, and we each get to do our part. So here's some of the ways that we're trying to delegate out responsibility. Uh, we have enacted a ministry help board which really helps us at the church plant level when we don't have a lot of staff 
And we, um, I basically, you know, I sent out an email this week all the different ways that you could help um, on some different projects. At the elder level, I think we, we really need help in executive functions. That is, uh, managing and running an organization, like if the church ever gets larger, that there's much to manage, be it um, HR and finances and this, that, and the other. Typically, as I said earlier, like pastors are not very good at that stuff. And so what you want to do is you want to get men and women who are talented in that to come in and, you know, serve on some either executive board or give them some executive functions in order to do that better. And then, you know, deacons and deaconesses lead us in in caring for the poor, that when deacons and deaconesses are doing their job well, they are basically handing the football to us and saying, you know, run. They're organizing things in that way, um, thanks to their administrative skill. Well, to conclude, uh, there was a group of Christians who wanted to help the poor in their community, and so they got a bunch of donations, and they opened a store for free clothes. Um, They're like, look, there's people in our city who need clothes to wear, so um, we'll get donations, we'll open a store, we'll put up the capital to start it, we'll we'll buy the building, we'll staff it, we'll run it, and we'll say free clothes. Like, what could go wrong with that? We do all the work, free clothes. Well, they quickly ran into trouble as people came in, and they would grab as many shirts as they could. Or they came in multiple times a day taking like a bunch of clothes. So the people running the store uh, made a rule. They would limit the number of clothes and limit the number of visits. Well, the clients still found a way to get around those rules. So the store operators then made up more rules. Eventually, it becomes this adversarial relationship between the people who are running the store and the people that they want to serve. they, They keep making more and more rules and try to police this free clothing store. And what they said at the end was like, we had great intentions, great intentions. We wanted to help people. Um, and now the people are coming in for help and they're mad at us. And this is going nowhere. What they realized, and this isn't going to surprise maybe some of you who have worked in these fields, what they realized is they needed to charge money for the clothes. If they had started out with that idea, well, somebody probably would have said, that's not right. We want to freely give clothes to other people. But they learned that they needed to run the store as a a, a lowercase business, not a business that would make profit on its own. But if they ran the store as a business, it would give people the dignity of purchasing something at a very reduced cost for themselves. Um, it, It may also provide an opportunity down the road where they could employ some of the people who were coming in and buying the clothes, who may need jobs. And they realized that it would cut down on people coming in multiple times a day and just hoarding shirts that they may not need. So originally they had the right heart, but they had the wrong approach. Structure and administration, um, it it really makes a difference. And I think that one of the areas that the church— lots of churches struggle in is we have good intentions but we just we don't have wise administrative leadership <laughs> and and that blunts our effectiveness so in a few minutes Anne's gonna lead us in prayer for this and and maybe the Lord will just bless our socks off and answering that prayer in the affirmative I hope so um, because because we we would be so much more effective serving our neighbors in the city if we had wise godly, administrative leadership. Um, I'll conclude by asking you the question, 
your gifts that Christ has given you, how utilized do you feel like your gifts are right now for the sake of the kingdom? And that doesn't just mean like, oh, I'm using my gifts at church or not using my church, because the kingdom is a whole lot broader than church, but it's not less than church. How utilized do you feel like your strengths and inclinations are? Um, And if your answer to that question is not, honestly, not that utilized, then what would it take what would it take to change that? How can we utilize it? I, I mean, my ears are wide open. <laughs> if you have ideas on like how we can grow in this, please let me know. It is not one of my greatest strengths, but it is an area that I've learned a little bit from over 20 years. Uh, like we just want Jesus to use all the gifts that he has here to the fullest effect. And, um, and that's what happened in Acts chapter 6, we pray that that'll happen again in our day. Amen.